0: Your province, your premier, with Premier Daniel Smith. Talk on FM, QR Calgary.
1: Welcome back to Your Province, Your Premier. I'm Wayne Nelson, your host and moderator. Every other Saturday morning at this time throughout the summer, I'll be speaking with Premier Daniel Smith about a few issues of the day. But again, this is your opportunity to speak to the premier directly, to ask your questions, to voice your concerns Whatever's on your mind, please keep it respectable, and please keep it as short as possible because of the sheer volume of calls and texts that we have. All right, bring your Danielle Smith ready and waiting to take your calls or texts. Those numbers, if you're not familiar with them yet, here they are, 403-974-8255 in Calgary. Seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three in Edmonton. Premier Smith, welcome to the show, and of course, Happy
2: Stampede. Oh, hello, Wayne. Happy Stampede. This is better than Christmas for politicians. Are to you have Stampede 10, breakfasted out? Not even All remotely. Right. I just cannot wait. I was at the Ismaili breakfast this morning, and they have a, I think they call it Barazi, which is a curry with their pancakes and, and their eggs, and it is one of the most memorable pancake breakfasts you will ever have. It's glorious.
1: I have yet to have my uh, official stampede breakfast, but it's on the agenda.
2: <laughs> well, you better get out there. There's only eight days left, right? I
1: know, I know. All right, as usual, a couple questions for me uh, before the show, before we head to the phone and text lines, and a few topics I'd like to address throughout the show. So here's what's on my agenda today. Your meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau, your vindication over the CBC's publication of a false story, the rising number of op- opioid uh, cases, and UNESCO's call to urgently fix problems at Wood Buffalo National Park. I know that's a... A federal purview as well. First, your chat with the PM. Three questions on this topic. Here's the first one. Do you feel you made any headway on the thorny and what you've called unrealistic issue of the federal government's 2035 net zero electricity emissions goal?
2: Well, there were three things that I wanted to get out of my meeting. One of them is... Is exactly that because, as we pointed out during the campaign, our experts at the Alberta Electric System Operator has already said that uh, to try to achieve that goal by 2035 would cost 52 billion dollars and increase everybody's power bills by 40 percent. And everybody's already feeling the pinch based on what we've seen in the price spike in the last couple of years. They, they, we just can't afford that. It's it's not realistic, and it's going to it's going to hurt people. We uh, we haven't won that one yet. Uh, what we 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 have agreed to do is to get to together at a table and talk about what would be a realistic time frame because look if we can build some inner ties with British Columbia and even with our friends in Manitoba which I understand want to do an expansion of uh, nuclear power if we can have an integrated western grid then we can decarbonize if we have time to implement carbon capture then we can also decarbonize and if we have the ability to go through a, an approval process to consider small modular nuclear at some of our large industrial sites then, then we can get there but that can't be done in a short period of time, all those things take time. So that's what I'm hoping that by getting to the table, we'll be able to have reality set in. But that's going to be the thorniest issue, I believe.
1: All right. The federal carbon tax, a second tax, took effect on Canada Day. But the Canadian Taxpayers Federation says Quebec gets a better deal than the rest of the country. Now, CTF Director Franco terrazano says Trudeau is forcing drivers in every other province quote, to pay 14 cents per liter of gas in carbon taxes while Quebecers pay 10 cents per liter, unquote did you discuss the carbon tax in general and Quebec's special deal specifically?
2: We talked about two other things, Um, not that one, and I'll tell you why. So one of the other big issues that we needed to win on is that we need to make sure they do not bring in an emissions cap on our oil and natural gas industry. They were talking about forcing us to do a 42% reduction by 2030, and I've told him that that would be a production cap, and I think offside with our Constitution. Plus, we also need to get credit when we reduce emissions internationally because we're exporting our clean LNG and displacing higher emissions fuels we need to get credit for that back home and there's a mechanism sure. for us to do that so those are two things where i think we can make some progress but the reason i mention those is because those are the ways that we should be reducing emissions not by punishing consumers consumers they they are uh, have to take the electricity they get right now it's made 90 they have to take the uh, fuels that are available right now that's gasoline and diesel and they have to heat their homes with what to, what's available right now that's natural gas it's just so punitive to consumers, what we need to do is invest in the technology and other ways to reduce global emissions. So the, this issue of the carbon tax is one that I'm going to the Council of the Federation next week. That's what they call the meeting of the premiers. And I must tell you, it, it, it's one thing for the federal government to say we're setting a floor price, but then it's got to be the same floor price. That's the only justification yeah, for them stepping Yeah, we can't have
1: in. this. Uh, Quebec gets the special deal. Completely. Yeah. So
2: I'm hoping that we can get a, a coalition of, of folks to either put pressure on the federal government to be more reasonable about how they approach that. Or maybe we try to take another uh, legal challenge forward on the basis of this unfairness. But I think we've already demonstrated how we feel about it. We uh, One of my our first acts once we got reelected was to extend the fuel tax reprieve. So our 13 cents a liter carbon tax, our fuel tax which normally goes to roads, we've suspended that as a way of offsetting what we're seeing at the federal level because we, we just know this is such an essential product for all the goods, all the services, every... It, Everything you buy, the cost of it has transportation fuel costs associated with it. And we've got a lot of people wanting to do summer fun, right? Go out and go camping and go traveling. We we say make sure that you look uh, at where the last gas station is before you leave Alberta to go to Saskatchewan or British Columbia and see if you can find a way to fill up before you leave and fill up again when you get back and you'll save a little bit of money.
1: Yeah, a bit of a shocker. All right, my final question regarding your meeting with Premier Trudeau, the BC port strike. Now, you previously called on the PM to bring Parliament back in as soon as possible to get a deal done because of the economic impact the strike is having. Now, I'm reminded of a line from one of my favorite movies, The American President, in which actor Michael Douglas, as the U.S. president, was informed of a pending airline strike at Christmas, and he responded, You know, I studied under a Nobel Prize-winning economist, and you know what he taught me? And his aide replied, Never have an airline strike at Christmas. And the president immediately headed out to personally intervene. I know it's just the movies, but is that the kind of response, the kind of leadership you'd like to see from our Prime Minister on this issue?
2: They certainly did it when it was the Port of Montreal and when a Quebec Premier, Premier Francois Legault and when Ontario Premier Doug Ford were asking for it, they intervened. They certainly intervened on the CP strike. There is no reason why they should not intervene here. Uh, uh, just to give you a couple of numbers around it, my understanding is that it's a uh, five hundred million dollars lost per day in, when a uh, product sitting when it's not being processed. In Alberta alone, uh, back in uh, twenty nineteen I think or twenty twenty one for the most recent statistics, we've got twelve point four billion dollars worth of product going just through those there. ports. Yeah. And so, uh, and I, I, talk, I spoke spoke with a representative from one of the the train stations. I, I'd like to, to to just convey how serious this is with the numbers that they shared with me. They Say they have three hundred thousand linear feet of train loaded with cargo waiting to go into the ports and the equivalent of about three hundred thousand uh linear feet of, of um of product to come in off the ships that are waiting out on the water. It's going to and for every day they're closed, it'll take two to five days to clear that backlog. We are now what on seven day, day seven yeah. of the strike. It can't last much longer. Um I've already spoken with the uh, not only the prime minister but also with the uh, with James O'Regan, who's the leading um, minister in helping with the mediation. I've spoken with the employers' group. I'm working on getting a conversation with the longshoremen's group because they need to understand. Like they, I understand they are concerned about job security. I get that, but you, you don't end up gaining your own job security by putting everybody else out of work. This is this is very serious. We, we are the only uh, government right now that has called for the the parliament to reconvene. I hope the other governments. Also do the same thing. I hope the federal uh, conservative party also calls for the government to uh, to to enter to uh, recall the parliament so that we could order them back to work right. and uh, and it, let's get a fair deal. Like I'm of the view of this that. That they're concerned about job security, but in my view, port jobs are probably the most secure jobs you could imagine because that is the most efficient way to be able to get product in and out of a, a country. We're, we're continuing to grow. We've got more product that we want to ship. There's going to be more jobs available in the future, and I, I hope that, that we can get that sense of trust that we want people to be well paid, and we want, to, we want those ports to be operating efficiently. It's okay. absolutely good, essential for us.
1: Good observation. All right, I want to get one phone call here before we have to go to a break. We'll uh, talk to Joe. Uh, from Calgary on child services. Go ahead, Joe.
3: Good morning. Um, my issue, Danielle, is is that uh, my grandson is in child services. Uh, my son, his father, passed away three years ago. And I'm in the process of trying to get kinship for him. And his caseworker sent me a pay schedule for um, kinship, and there hasn't been an increase since 2018. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example, which it doesn't apply in my case, but babysitting hasn't been looked at since 2012. And they offer two dollars and sixty cents a day, which equals on a thirty-day schedule seventy-eight bucks. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure who I'm hired for that, but um, the other thing is is there's a lot of atrocities within the system. Here, a year or two ago, an advocate that was retiring for Alberta said, "Unless child services is." starting to be held accountable. Uh, they're going to have more deaths in the system that particular year there was 70 kids that were lost.
1: Okay, uh, Joe and and reason. your uh, if you allow the Premier to, to answer your concerns. Yeah, yeah Joe's
2: it. Joe's Joe's right. I mean a Thank lot you. of these kids from, come from really hard and devastating backgrounds. And and part of the reason why we have a, a system where they can be supported is so that they can recover from the trauma that they've had. And we certainly don't want their circumstances to be worse when they go into into uh, our system. So we've got some new leadership there with uh, Cyril Turton. He's our, our, our new minister of, of children and family services. I'd encourage Joe for you to get in touch with the office and give some of your observations. But you raise a good point. One of the things that happened when I first got elected is I found that there were certain areas that we hadn't looked at in a long time, like the amount of money that we were supporting are persons with developmental disability organizations. They hadn't seen an increase in, since 2014. And it sounds to me like, based on what you've said, there might be some oversight in, uh, in uh, making sure that we're bringing up to the level of inflation the, this, some of those services and the, you know, the payment schedule in that area. So it's, it's on my list, and I'll make sure that uh, Minister Turton has a chance to look at that, and we'll see if we can correct that in the next budget.
1: Okay, time for a quick break. I'm Wayne Nelson. I'll be back with Premier Danielle Smith and more of your calls and texts when we return on Your Province, Your Premier.
0: Your province, your premier, with Premier Daniel Smith.
4: Talk on FM. QR Calgary.
1: If you're just joining us today, you are indeed listening to Your Province, Your Premier, heard every Saturday morning during the summer months for listeners throughout Alberta, in Edmonton on 630 Chet, and here in Calgary on QR Calgary. Your opportunity to be heard by Premier Daniel Smith. All right, let's get right to the phones, and we'll talk to... Steve from Calgary on low-income housing. Go ahead, Steve. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith.
5: Yeah, to build one low-income housing unit is three to $400,000, and it will take years to come about. Or there's plan B. I sent you a text with a picture of a manufactured home. High River has two manufactured home parks. Now, this is how families in the 60s and 70s, a lot of them got their start. On a 20-year mortgage is $400 a month. The city bought the land 30 years ago, so that's bought and paid for. They're not out new money. So on a new subdivision, they should designate 400-unit lots, and they don't take up a lot of land. The province would kick in about $30,000 to bring out utilities and landscaping. So what would happen is a low-income unit, oh, the lot price would be about $150 a month to keep for upkeep and maintenance. That's $550 a month. That's Affordable, not for no income, I'm talking low-income housing. Now, they would end up with an equity ownership stake and pride of ownership by going this route. It's ready-made. You can do this right now if it's a priority. But the problem is, Calgary, Edmonton, any urban planner with letters after their names seem to think this is substandard housing. It is not. This is how my family got its start in the 60s. We can go back to this business model if we wanted to, and they would have pride of ownership, and it would not cost three to $400,000 from the taxpayer. You'd be out the land you purchased 30 years ago, which is paid for, and about $30,000 to bring out utilities and landscaping. The difference between a nice park and a bad park is landscaping and following the rules, and then you have a nice park. All right.
1: anyways those are my
2: thoughts thank you Steve right on Steve I, I think you're, you're the proposal that you that you're suggesting is exactly the kind of direction that we need to go you may remember that I was in favor of supporting the residents of Midfield Park when uh, when that was being shut down because we, I felt like if you are going to shut that down for other development you need to at least find another place for those uh, those manufactured homes to move to and that is one of the ways that you can do entry-level housing so you've you've probably seen at the federal level Pierre Polyev has argued that the federal uh, Federal government, provincial government, and municipal government need to do a better job of identifying lands they own, turn them over to this kind of affordable housing development. And I, I think you're really on to something. We, we have an opportunity, I think, because as well with manufactured homes. We, we know we have a shortage of qualified labor. If you can bring all of your laborers together in one facility, in one place, have the regularity of work, it may also help with the attraction to get more people into that line of work as well. So I've, uh, I've made a few notes, uh, Steve, on your suggestions, but I, I think you're going in the right direction, uh, especially now. Uh, Alberta is calling. Our campaign is working in spades. We have more people coming into this province than literally ever before.
1: And not enough homes to accommodate everybody. And,
2: and, And we have to be able to accelerate the speed with which we can get homes in place. I think I just heard that sometime maybe around 2025, we're going to have 5 million people in Alberta with the rate that we're seeing people come here. And we want to keep that going. So thanks for the suggestion, Steve. I'll definitely look into it.
1: Okay. On the subject of housing, John is calling in from Edmonton regarding the energy rebate for condo owners. Go Go ahead, ahead, John. You're on with the premier. Oh,
3: hi. Good morning, premier. How are you this morning?
2: Excellent. Thank you.
3: Great prior to the election on this show you had discussed there was discussion about having uh, the rebates the electrical rebates being paid to condo owners who have the bulk system the single meter uh to a building and at that time you had said your minister was working on it and you thought there would be a way of getting this done it had to be done in a way that wouldn't become taxable where are you with that where is the government with that is the enthusiasm still there for the condo owners after
2: the election. I uh, just sent a note to my staff saying, condo rebates, where are we at? Because I have a new minister in there, as you probably know, for affordability and yeah. utilities. That's, uh, that's Nathan Newdorf. And I think I I, I I'd received a, a note last week that they were meeting with their ministry to talk about it. So uh, I'll see if my staff can come up with an answer in the meantime. And and uh, I'll get back to, hopefully, before the sh- end of the show today, I'll tell you where we're at on
1: it. All right. Thanks for calling in, John. Uh, Premier Smith, a couple of weeks ago, or uh, we had a question about Payment for virtual nursing, something along that lines. You've got a bit of an update for us.
2: I do. So, here, I know it's very complicated because um, most people's access to the healthcare system is 100% publicly funded. That's for doctor services and hospital services. But I think increasingly people understand that there are certain services that you pay for out of pocket. Anyone who goes to a physiotherapist or a naturopathic doctor or podiatry, there's a whole range of services that are not uh, medically insured. And so nurse practitioners fall into a realm where, yeah, sometimes we um, have them on staff at hospitals and when they provide medically necessary services, it's 100% paid for. And then when they're providing some of those other services that are not insured, they're able to charge for them just like a physiotherapist would. So that's, I think, what what you were seeing. What I would like to see, since nurse practitioners... Are trained almost to the same level of doctors. It's sort of you've got a, a GP route where a doctor goes through, a nurse practitioner gets to the same end, but going through the nursing route. I would like to see more of them in integrated practices, so that we have team practices with doctors, nurse practitioners, LPNs, and other health professionals, as well as potentially even setting up their own practices. But we we didn't get to the finish line on a contract on on that before the election. But it is a very high priority for us to do that. But anyone who provides services that are not covered explicitly by our publicly funded health care system are able to charge okay and that's
1: why that happened all right uh, one of the big stories this past week cbc finally apologized and said gosh we can't find that evidence that we said that we had uh about the uh allegation that someone in your office had contacted the prosecution service about the cases coming out of the coots process uh, protest w- w- your response at the time was all right let's put it behind us and move forward. Is that, is that still the case? Have you had uh, more time to think about it? Um, wh- where are you sitting on this?
2: All I really want is for journalism to be like it was when I first started. Um, I started in journalism in the late 90s, and my boss at the time said so journalism is supposed to be fair, accurate, and balanced. Those are so, sort of the three pillars of good journalism. And, and w- when I was in, in, in print media, whenever you made a mistake – corrected it immediately there, there's sort of a there, the, that culture seems to have been lost it seems like now when media makes a mistake they dig in double down write more stories get everybody else to write stories as if the volume of stories makes it somehow true and so sometimes you've got to fight back like I'm not going to fight the media on every little thing but when they get something dead wrong and it's consistently shown that they're dead wrong and I demonstrate that it's dead wrong by not only my own comments but the comments of the independent public service the po- comments of the head of the prosecution service Service, the investigation that we did, going through all the emails, the ethics commissioner interviewing every single prosecutor, interviewing every single person in my office, then darn right they should say they were wrong and they should apologize. Now they they regret the error, they didn't apologize, and uh, you know I guess you you take uh, ha- you take sort of a sorry not sorry approach. They at least recognize that they were wrong, but it, I think other media need to be mindful of that. That just because the CBC get a billion and a half worth of dollars from the federal government, and just because their president goes around. Claiming that they are the gold standard of journalism, it doesn't mean it's true. Everyone has to do their due diligence, and they have to be fair. They have to be accurate. They have to be balanced. And I've asked my staff to make sure that that happens in future stories. So, um, I think it's over with the the CBC. I'll accept the the fact that they corrected, but I'm still going to call for media to uh, to, to to do a whole lot better in the in the coverage that they give.
1: Yep, check the facts. Yep. All right. Uh, Harry has a story, a question regarding the justice system. Harry is calling in from Edmonton. Go ahead, Harry. You're on with Premier Daniel Smith.
6: Hey, good morning, and thank you for accepting my call. I have a real quick question. Who is your minister here uh, as president? And um, here's a quick, quick uh, rundown. You know, men are sometimes stereotyped. And women seem to get the better end of the raw deal if you're going to a relationship where there's separation and divorce. And they claim that a uh, dowry, they're entitled to a dowry. doesn't matter if they commit, commit adultery, uh, that kind of thing. All they have to do is qualify for one year to live with a man or common law for nine months. And that puts them in. So I think they, the system has to be revamped. Revamped because... Too many men have been taken uh, advantage of. And uh, if you can tell me who your minister is and how you can address this uh, premier.
2: Well, there's probably a couple ministers that you can talk to. And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm very empathetic to... The, the fact that um, we've got we've got always two sides of a story when a when a relationship breaks down and we we, uh, we have to make sure that we're supporting both people and ensuring that we're not putting anybody in financial hardship and and there are lots of, of spouses who are entitled to get compensation and payment and spousal support and children's support that don't get it but there are also uh, a lot of spouses who find themselves in dire dire financial situations because of um, of payments that they just can't afford to have so i agree with you that we need to take a closer look at it so i would say a couple things cyril turton is now my minister of children and family services so we've made that so that we can be looking holistically at how we keep uh, family units intact and family units supported and then we also have mickey amory he's my new uh, justice minister and he's very keen to find reforms that will be able to make this particular area of family practice uh, a lot more fair. So, um, so all uh, I hope I'm hoping he's listening today, but, but do know that, that it's um, a high priority for us to, to do whatever we can to, to support families, to make sure they stay intact. But when, they, uh, when something tragic happens and they break down to make sure that it doesn't put and disadvantage one, one spouse over the other.
1: All right. One more phone call coming in from Edmonton. This is Murray. He's been hanging on for about half the show already. Uh, Premier Smith, <laughs> Uh, Murray, go ahead. You're on with uh, Premier Daniel Smith.
4: Thank you, Wayne. Premier Smith, good day. Hello. So, my I work downtown Edmonton, right beside the mustard seed in the area I call the zone, the drug area. I see that area as a very large mental institution, minus the buildings and the fence. Um, I, my question today, and then I, I would like to offer a suggestion, how are we proceeding on, what do you call that, the compassionate Intervention Act? How are we proceeding on that? A vacancy law? Here's my concern. I talk to people every night. I just do. I ask questions. One thing that I hear all the time is the deplorable state of the HOPE properties, the HOPE mission properties. Um, I, I could go on and on, but I won't. Could the province please send in Mystery shoppers, for lack of better words, to actually stay at the Herb Jameson and the Hope Woman Shelter for three days and investigate. Just observe, watch. The things I'm hearing are terrible. For example, uh, at the Herb Jameson, there's no cold water fountains. Mm. I go, What? I go, What? I go, How do you get a drink of water, buddy? You have to line up at the guards and they give you a paper cup of water. Mm. So to summarize, I've been down there working for six months. I talk every day to the homeless drug addicts. And those, they're afraid to go in there. Mm. They truly are. That's why they're out in tents. They won't go in there. And the women's shelter is 100 times worse than the Herb Jameson men's shelter. So could the province please send in, I'll, I'll go. I'll go for you. I'll work for free. Send me in with somebody else, a team. And we want to actually stay in the facilities and see what the heck is going on. Hmm. But how, I'm telling you, I'm not lying. All I'm right. not lying. And these people... Yeah, anyway. So how are we proceeding on the Compassionate Intervention Act
2: yeah, well, you know, it's a it's an interesting thought that you have of somebody. I think you called it almost like a secret shopper going in and, and living having the lived experience of of what those shelters are like. Let me let me raise that with Jason Nixon, who is our new Minister of Seniors, Community, and Social Services. And one of the things that I say that I think has been missing, and that we are now in the process of building, is that we we need to build recovery communities because I think what you've identified is a person is not in a mind frame to be able to uh, recover and move on and learn the skills to have an independent life in the kind of environment that is um, is in our existing shelters. That's why we're creating a new approach. We've got our first recovery community in Red Deer. We just did two signings this week because we'll have another in Siksika as well as in uh, um, in Sutina, Enoch and Kainai because that's what we need is to take somebody out of the environment that they're in give them detoxification services, give them deep therapy to understand what it is that is causing them to go back into addiction, teach them um, life skills so that they can shop and cook and take care of themselves, get a job, and then at the end of that process, have a totally different life. That that is the approach that we're taking with our recovery communities. Unfortunately, we're only four years into our eight-year plan, so we have eleven of these that we're building. So um, it's going to roll out slowly over time. And I, I I accept your point that in the interim, we've got to do whatever we can to make sure that the existing shelter spaces are providing for the the basic needs that people have. And if they're if they're not up to that standard, we, we've got to get them up there. But but do know it's going to take. I think removing people. People from that environment and giving them a new pathway in order for us to solve the problem completely. The um, approach we're taking, we call it compassionate care, and we're working on the legislative framework for it right now where we can deliver a treatment order to order somebody who's a harm to themselves or others into a uh, into mandatory treatment and so we have to make sure we're doing that mindfully that there's a judicial process so that it isn't arbitrary it's got to go through a court process because we want to make sure that uh, that it's that it stands up I don't I don't know if you saw Chief Corey Crowfoot this week, but he was asked the, uh, the question about whether or not um, and why whether or not his community would support him and he said that in, as part of their culture they, they just don't sit back as a community and allow people to self-destruct. And we've got to be in that mindset, too, that this is self-destruction we're watching. We're watching people kill themselves slowly, and it's not compassionate to do that. We've got to do something else.
1: All right. As a follow-up to uh, our caller's uh, question, uh, opioid deaths uh, continue to rise. And, of course, the latest is that animal tranquilizer uh, xylazine is being added to opioids uh, and contributing to uh, increased deaths uh, what is the government's response? Where are we on that? I mean, you got a uh, boy on the health care front, uh, Premier Smith, you have got, uh, I don't know, it, it's going to take you almost forever to get things under control, but uh, it, it's a big job.
2: We've got a real problem with opioids. And I'm, I'm just going to be frank with you that, that there is no such thing as a safe supply of, of opioids. I know some are, are advancing the idea that the the way that you solve an opioid addiction is that you give prescription opioids. We reject that completely. And the reason we do is because we're watching what's happening in British Columbia. British Columbia has gone down this path and they are seeing the same spike in these kinds of deaths as we are seeing here the, we believe the solution is to get people off opioids and get them onto a pathway where they can where they can recover. What's happened in the, uh, the market in British Columbia and Alberta is that they are taking the, the fentanyl and lacing it with tranquilizers. And as a result, our naloxone kits, our Narcan kits aren't working because uh, normally you would be able to revive somebody in an overdose. But when you can't do that, you end up having to call a paramedic and take them to hospital, and sadly we 're seeing a lot more deaths so this is uh, this is a, a i don 't think we 've ever seen anything quite this bad I mean when I was growing up, obviously we had a heroin addiction problem, we had a uh, crack cocaine. This is, an, a, this is a this is a whole a whole different problem altogether. I am hearing that kids are having uh, the, uh, access to opioids as sort of their first entry into drugs, which was never the case when I was a kid.
1: No, when I was growing up, it's a, beware of marijuana. That's your uh, gateway drug.
2: Completely, yeah. and now kids, and this is the other part of the problem, which is why we do not support the BC approach. Now, if you watch the show, Canada is Dying, and I was interviewed for that, as was my chief of staff, Marshall Smith, who's leading our effort on this. The the practical reality of what happens when you do safe supply, somebody goes in and they buy their, they get their hydromorphine prescription filled. And this is a, a, a drug that's five times more powerful than heroin and then they turn around and they sell it to a drug dealer so that they can get fentanyl and then the drug dealer takes that and they go and sell it to younger and younger and younger kids addicting more and more and more people and that is not the right pathway we've got to we've got to get opi- people off opioids completely and that's why we're taking a recovery oriented approach and and from time to time we're going to see really bad and dangerous strains that are coming into our market. That's what we're at right now. This is going to be a policing response. And so I've got I've got Mike Ellis looking into it. He's been meeting with the chiefs and talking about what we're going to do about it. And hopefully he'll have more to say about that soon.
1: All right. Robert, uh, calling in from Edmonton on a life resources uh, question. Go ahead, Robert. You're on with the premier.
5: Hi, how are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks for calling.
5: I'm going to turn the radio off. Um, It's a pleasure to talk to you. I want to congratulate you on your recent election victory. And um, I'm calling from Edmonton. And I was hoping that, like, you could off radio, uh, forward me a phone number to help me with resources because I've exhausted all mine. And I've, like, I volunteer. I learn. And I'm struggling, and I'm trying to get ahead, and I'm hitting brick walls because everybody's just turning me around in circles, and they're telling me things I already know, and it's just not working. Oh
2: uh, man. I'm I
5: so- just grabbed a pen. Yeah,
2: I'm and sorry. I appreciate you Here, your let time. me make it. Let me make it easy for you. Um, call two one one because that is uh, the number that we have for I've access. I've
5: already done that, and uh, the. Like I said, a volunteer. I'm, I'm kind of educated on okay. what's out there. Um, and Robert, I'll get, you to, I'll get you to, uh,
1: I'm just going to put you, uh, I'm going to try to put you on hold, and I will get our uh, producer to get your number. No,
4: that'd
6: be fine. Okay. That's what I
1: all wanted. Right. I wanted Thank, yeah, well, to offer. We'll see what, what we can do then, Robert. All it, right. And then I can deal with this myself. Sure. All. all right. Thank you. Okay.
2: I'll just say, I mean, one of the things that I'll have uh, Jason Nixon look into again or he's uh, seniors, communities and social services is that there there are a lot of people who I think are in the position of the last caller where it's it's hard to navigate through a system and it's hard to, to be able to get access to the programs for support. It's been suggested to me before that we need we need almost like a pathway finder, a navigator so that somebody calls in and they can be. Um, they can be case managed to get connected to the resources that they need because they're uh, I mean, if it's if it's complicated across multiple departments. Imagine how how difficult it is for somebody who finds themselves uh, in, the, in the kind of situation that you that the caller did. So um, so thank you. I'll, I'll see if we can get uh, Jason Nixon to, to follow up, and I, I hope he, he'll uh, he'll just leave the number for us. Thank you for for your call.
1: Okay, on to the text line. This is uh, from QR Calgary text line. Premier Smith, I cannot wait any longer for my hip surgery. It's compromising my health too much, so I'm going out of province and will be spending twenty thousand dollars plus. Since AHC will not be incurring the cost of my surgery, it only seems fair that I be reimbursed. What it would cost them had I had the surgery done in Alberta. What do you think? Glad you were elected.
2: (laughs) You know what? I agree with him. Um, if we can't provide the surgeries here, then we should be reimbursing people at the rate that they're paying elsewhere. I ran on that in 2012. I was prepared to commit to it during this past election as well. We uh, we, we ended up because of the fires getting disrupted on our campaign with some of our announcement, uh, announcements. But I can tell you that that would put the pressure on the system here, that if we are not treating people here within a medically reasonable period of time, then we we have to be able to support them getting their care elsewhere. But I'll tell you what, I want to solve the problem here first. I want to make sure that we have a system uh, that has the maximum number of surgeries done every single week so that nobody finds themselves in that position. And we are making progress. I can tell you, I, 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 I have extended Dr. John Kell's contract for another six months. And one of the things that he is focused on is improving the capacity not only of our doctor-run surgical centers. That's an important element of our system. They're now doing sixty thousand surgeries of three hundred thousand a year. But we have to make sure that every single AHS facility has all of its operating rooms with the highest capacity and and operating uh, in full with the complement of staff. Because when we have that, we will be able to clear that backlog. Now, Dr. John tells me that we are on track still to be able to eliminate the back the backlog of patients. Waiting longer than medically recommended by March of next year. So he has maintained that. The next step, though. Is that we've got to not let people languish on the specialist list. That's the other part. Is the time it takes from getting your primary care practitioner to say, "Okay, you've got to see a specialist," and then the specialist recording you on the list so that you can get into see treatment. We've That's got right. to compress all of that. So, um, so, so perhaps what uh, what the last caller suggested is the is the right way of doing it is by having a bit of a penalty, saying if we don't do it here, we're going to pay to have it done elsewhere. Uh, but um, I haven't. I have to work that through with my caucus. But in principle. I think he's, he's dead right on that. And I think that we can get the system performing as a result. I mean, let's go forward a, a year or two or three. What I would love our system to be is so efficient that not only are all of our patients taken care of, but we're able to take patients from other provinces because we're, we're, we're so efficient. Right now, I'm seeing British Columbia is sending patients to America. Saskatchewan is sending patients out of province. If, um, if we can get our system working properly to take care of, of ourselves, then I, I think we can also be offering that service to others. That's where I want us to get to.
1: Okay, time for one more break. I'm Wayne Nelson with Premier Danielle Smith. We'll be back to wrap things up in our final segment on Your Province, Your Premier. Wayne Nelson back with you on Your Province, Your Premier. Your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith one-on-one if you've got a specific question you'd like the Premier to answer. The numbers to phone or text are 4039-748-255 in Calgary. 780-496-0063 in Edmonton. Please try to keep it short. Uh, We've got a full slate of callers and all kinds of texts. We're going to go to uh, who's been hanging on the longest here? Diane in Calgary. Go ahead, Diane. You have an affordable housing question.
7: Yes, I wanted to uh, make an addition to the previous caller, Steve, regarding affordable housing. Uh, Danielle, would you consider rental cap even for one to two years while we're getting the housing market back up uh, to be more affordable? The reason why I'm asking is because uh, we don't want Alberta to be like Ontario under wind. People right now to pay for the rent to keep a roof over their homes are giving up buying groceries. I know adults are uh, forgoing going eating so their children have one to two meals a day. Calgary Housing has over a two-year wait list to give any financial support to allow people to pay their rent and buy food. And are you aware that many investors, especially from BC and uh, Ontario, are buying homes, at least in Calgary? We're talking like several homes on a block. just as an investment they don't live here and i'm thinking that maybe you should consider too like bc if they are buying these homes uh, and not living in alberta they should be paying a special tax of 20 percent and anyone who's buying additional properties that is not their primary residence they should be paying additional tax would you consider that at least For a two-year term until we get more houses built.
2: Well, let me tell you where I do agree with you. Um, I, 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 I think we should take a look at vacancy taxes because I have seen that as well in commercial space in a lot of community downtowns, especially in rural areas. Uh, and i can even see that in, in high river um, properties that have been vacant for years on end and then it makes it very difficult not only on the property tax base for the for the town but also uh, the the neighboring businesses and i i've been reading the same stories that you have about uh, about home purchases or or condo purchases and then the and then it being left vacant so I, I don't know the extent of that problem in alberta so i'd want to do some investigation on it and i think that that's probably the appropriate way to deal with it I, I don't support rental caps, no. And the reason for that is because if you're telling the private sector that at any given moment, the, the provincial government will step in and, and tell you how much you can charge, you're just going to have fewer and fewer people interested in investing in our market. And so we want to make sure that because the solution to this problem is for people to say that this is the place to be, therefore they want to build more. And so um, rental caps and a rent control often has the opposite effect of making lower and lo- fewer and fewer numbers of sweets available the approach we have taken is to try to provide some rental subsidy to those who are low income and I think it's the job of governments to do a lot of what Steve has suggested is that you identify lands that you can turn over at a lower cost, put affordable housing, get manufactured homes on so you can do them quickly, get the servicing done quickly get through the building permitting and developing permitting very quickly and get some of this uh, this on stream. It shouldn't be taking years to get these projects built and I, I think that that's incumbent upon us as a province as well as the municipalities to make sure that we're coordinating to get, to get new stock on stream faster
1: all right uh shirley has a senior driving requirement question shirley calling in uh on the edmonton ched line go ahead shirley
0: uh good morning i would like to see a level playing field for seniors driving tests we belong to a clinic where they allow an hour for cognitive testing you have your eye exam and your doctor's visit. I have neighbours who go into their doctor's office, they say, how are you today, ask them a couple questions, very simply, have their eye and their exam, and away they go and get their licence. Now, to me, I I think the cognitive testing is important, but I don't think it's a level playing field. Like, everybody should have to do the same kind of requirement. So, it kind of frustrates me. Uh, I'm due to go again, which is fine. Uh, But... I sure would like to see some standard instead of uh it's so simple for some people and uh and maybe a little more difficult for others like i uh, like a total recall when they give you 10 words and in 10 minutes they want you to repeat them back.
2: Oh, boy, I don't even know if I could do that. Could you, I know it's not <laughs> polite to ask a woman her age, but uh, maybe you can tell me when, when does the cognitive testing start, just so that I, I know where we have to, to take a look into well, the it policy. it to
0: me that we had a test at age 75, and then once you reach 80, yeah. then it's every two years you renew your driving license.
2: Okay, let me take a look at that, because, you know, one of the things I would notice is that seniors are getting... More, uh, they're at, more and more active for longer and longer. I there was a an old timer in uh, in High River, I believe, who was driving his car until he was ninety eight years old. And so, that may not have been the case when these these policies were developed in the first place. Yeah. And with with seniors being able to be active and to have um, have great cognition for a lot longer, I think perhaps we need to to do as uh, as was suggested there. So this would fall into the realm of Devon our transportation and economic corridors minister. And I can I can tell you, I'm so impressed. With him, because when he identifies a problem, he solves them. We had a problem with GDL licenses; those are those graduated licenses, where it cost kids one hundred and fifty-four dollars in order to be able to get a test, so that they could take it off. And the vast majority of young people were just saying, "Forget it; I'm not going to do it." But you know, if you don't have the uh, the full license, then you can't go on to do the training for other types of of, uh, of licenses. You can't you can't drive truck and uh, and and uh, and go in that direction. So I think we were limiting our pool of people interested in that. So he was able to solve that in. In a couple of short months so i'll put the, i'll put him on this to make sure at least that we've got some fairness in how we're and and how we're doing these testing uh, we one thing that we did campaign on is making it more cost-effective because we do know that because cognition does begin to, to fail as you get older, there will be, just be that higher level of uh, of diligence. But we want to be able to give a break at on, uh, on the services at registries of 25% discount for seniors, knowing that they might have to use them a little bit more. So that's one thing that we'll do on the financial side to make it a bit less of a burden.
1: All right. Uh, one automobile-related uh, question on the 630CHED text line. Good morning, Premier. Why did my auto insurance go up? Even though you have a rate freeze on, I haven't had a ticket or any accidents.
2: It's probably the value of your vehicle. This is one of the things that I learned when I got elected is that we changed the way insurance is levied. Before, Wayne, if you and I got into a car accident and I was to blame, I would pay for the cost of your vehicle on my insurance. And and
1: I think that's the right way to do it.
2: Well, now what we have is that uh, your insurance pays for the cost of your vehicle. And so if I drive a little beater and you drive a brand new fancy uh, vehicle that's worth $80,000, your your insurance is going to be higher than mine. So it may be that we have to reconsider that policy because I think people, we either... Like, no fault has been proposed for some time. I don't know enough about it to know if that is a, an appropriate path to go down. But we kind of really did implement a bit of a partial no fault. And this is part of the reason, because I have a fully depreciated car. My insurance hasn't gone up. <laughs> but anyone who's got a brand new car noticed that it's been extraordinary, something in the order of double or triple. Uh, I've also spoken to members of the insurance industry, because I'm, I'm just as frustrated as anybody else by this. And I'll tell you one of the things they said is that in the past to get into a little fender bender it used to cost $2,000 to repair. Now it can cost, no kidding, this was the example she used, up to $27,000 to to repair a bumper because it's got all of the, all the cameras and the electronics. Yes. Yeah. So we have to talk with the, with the auto manufacturers because that's ridiculous. I mean, if that is the most common type of incident, it shouldn't be the most expensive repair, and I think that that's what's driving a lot of the raise. Now I don't know if I'll have much success in uh, in convincing the auto manufacturers that they've got to do things a bit of a different way, but that's part of the reason everything's being driven up. And um, we've got to do something uh, something more to be able to protect consumers and also educate consumers on this. I mean, I didn't know it myself until I had uh, somebody hit me from behind and then they drove off. But I, my insurance allowed me to pay for my my first. Uh, uh my first claim without it affecting my rates and i thought okay well this is just a there's no problem so taillight broken bumper a little bit dented $9,500 was the ultimate repair so i i became aware of this a few years ago and that's part of the reason that everything is getting driven up
1: all right premier smith once again it's been a pleasure i know you got a busy schedule more stampeding to do uh, more meeting uh political meets during stampede which is uh, kind of what it's all about. It's going
2: it? to be amazing. I should just tell you a couple of things that I am doing next week so that you know. There is a Council of the Federation meeting with all of the premiers, so we're going to push forward on a number of different agendas. Uh, and I'm also going to the LNG Canada Conference. Uh, it's in it's in British Columbia. I think there's 7,000 delegates. So I'm going to make this strong case that the world needs more Canada, the world needs way more LNG, and I'll hopefully be able to, to push things along so that we can get more of that product uh, being given to our, our friends and allies internationally. So we're going to keep on doing those kinds of things.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Day. Thank you. We'll do this again in a couple of weeks at this same time. I'm Wayne Nelson. You've been listening to Your Province,
6: Your Premier.